This recording is copyrighted by Grant Susalu and is licensed and released under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 Unported License. This recording is freely released for any personal use, including duplication and sharing in its entirety, and provided that it is not used for commercial sale or used in any context other than the educational context within which it was created, and that credit of its authorship is attributed to the copyright owners with links back to the website www.embraining.com. Please note that this recording is intended for educational purposes only and is not rendering any medical, psychological, financial, legal or other professional advice. Any personal actions taken based on this recording is at the sole discretion and responsibility of the listener. Hi, I'm Grant Suzalu. Did you know the latest research findings in neuroscience have shown that we all have three complex and functional brains, one in our head, one in our heart and one in our gut? Our book, Embraining, describes the scientific evidence for this as well as a suite of powerful yet practical methods for harnessing the capacities of your three brains to achieve greater wisdom in your daily decisions and in your actions. With MBIT, you can live more fully, more powerfully, and much more joyfully than ever before. I'm talking today with leadership researcher, expert, and educator, Jim Kutsis. Along with his co-author, Barry Posner, they've published many, many books on leadership, including the award-winning and best-selling book, The Leadership Challenge, with over 2.5 million copies sold. The Wall Street Journal named Jim one of the 10 best executive educators in the US, and he's been recognized by HR Magazine as one of the top 20 most influential international thinkers on leadership. Thank you, Jim, for your time today and for being your willingness to do this interview. I'm really, really pleased to be talking to you. You know, the thing that we want to talk to you about is leadership, because you are a leadership expert. You've written a number of books and... You've done a lot of research and uh, followed your work for a number of years, and it's so deeply aligned with what we've been discovering about the competencies, the leadership competencies of embodied cognition, of, how, of the importance of the heart and the importance of, of gutsy courage in the gut. It's not just all about the head brain and amazing intelligence in the head brain, but it's something to do with the way you use the whole of the person you know, as a leader, uh, that you turn up as a, as a whole person, as a whole embodied person. So, you know, I know in your work, you know, there's a, there's a quote that uh, I often reference. It says that, for example, the, a quote from you is, leadership doesn't happen without courage. In fact, leadership might be defined as courage in action. So, you know, you're really talking about the importance of courage to leadership. And another one was, uh, encouraging the heart is the leadership practice that connects us with one another. You know, you <coughs> often talk about the heart. And I know you, you may be talking about that metaphorically, you know, the importance of, the, of heart-based, you know, heartfelt emotions. But our work has shown that this neural intelligence of the heart and the gut, in fact, is part of, you know, that, that neural processing, embodied processing. Yeah. So for us, the heart and, and gut truly are not just metaphors. But your work is focused, you know, from looking at leadership competencies on this. So I just wondered if you'd speak to us about your work and what you've found and what, what's important in terms of the alignment of head, heart and gut to leadership. Well, thank you, Grant. Very much a pleasure to be talking with you about this topic, um, my favorite topic for uh, for the last 40 years. And specific to the issue of courage that you mentioned, uh, we put that in the context of another part of our uh, of our model. And so perhaps it would be useful if I just gave a very brief overview to provide that context in case there is someone who may not be familiar with our other work, Grant. Would that be okay with you? That would be wonderful. Thank you. 
Perfect. Well, Barry Poser and I began our work with one fundamental question, and that question was, what are leaders doing when they're operating at their best, when they're performing at their best? And we were looking at leaders with a small L, not a capital L, not CEOs or presidents or people in prestigious offices, but people who were everyday leaders, if you will, uh, and expanded that out to not just be managers inside organizations, but also parents and teachers and coaches and, and individuals in community organizations and civic life. So we tried to, to cast a broad net and discover what people did when they were operating at their best as leaders. And we so we asked people to tell us a story about a time when they were at their best. We called it their personal best leadership experience. From that, those case collections, uh, which were done both written and oral in interviewing people, we came up with a framework. The framework that emerged from that was what we call the five practices of exemplary leadership. Those five practices are very briefly model the way, inspire a shared vision, challenge the process, enable others to act, and encourage the heart. Those five practices emerge from these personal best leadership stories. And then from that, we created an instrument called the Leadership Practices Inventory to measure the behaviors that people said were important within each of those practices. And that provided us then with some data, some evidence to either uh, demonstrate or disprove that these practices mattered to more than just those that we interviewed and those that we surveyed. And what we came up with was a very robust, valid and reliable framework for looking at leader behavior uh, based upon these five practices. In other words, the more you engage in these five practices of exemplary leadership, the more likely it is that people will be engaged in their work, that your constituents will be, if you're the leader, be engaged in their work, and the more profitable or productive will be the organization. So that's the context in which we talk about these various subjects like courage and caring, heart, uh, as well as the, the brain and the, the processes of thinking and creativity. And, and within that context, then when we talk about courage, we talk about it in terms of what leaders do when they are faced with an adverse situation, when they're faced with uncertainty or difficulty. Uh, and, and that, interestingly enough, what's significant about that is that every single one of the personal best leadership stories involves some kind of adversity which was something that we did not expect. You know, we often think about personal best experiences as those which are where we're in flow and we're at a high state of arousal. We're feeling very good. We're feeling uh, as if nothing can go wrong. And yet what was true about the context or the situation was that they all involve some kind of adversity or difficulty or challenge. And yet, what we asked people to write about was their personal best. So there is an interesting relationship between doing your best and confronting those adverse, difficult situations, either initiating them yourself or if you are assigned something that is challenging and difficult, you then engage and embrace that fully. And so courage becomes integral to that because if we feel as if, we're unprepared, 
or incapable of dealing with that adverse circumstance, we're not going to be performing at our best. And we have to reach a little deeper within ourselves to realize whether to ask ourselves a few crucial questions. Uh, one is, uh, am I feeling that this is really all that important to take this risk right now? Does it really mean that much to me? Sometimes we might say yes, sometimes we might say no. We're not going to have much courage to engage in something that could be potentially high risk and harmful if we don't believe in it. If it doesn't matter that much to us, if we don't have some kind of personal uh, stake in it, or if something that's important to us isn't at risk. So that's the first step. But even when we do that, we may feel like, oh, this is not the right time. The consequences to me may be too serious or severe. I don't want to risk that. And that's okay. Just because we don't feel like we have courage at that moment, uh, it doesn't mean we won't necessarily that, that there's something wrong with us. Yeah. But it just at that moment that we don't have the courage to call on this. And yet when we do feel one that it's important and meaningful to us and then we can take action, then we can perform at our best. That makes absolute sense. And it makes sense from our perspective too because we look at leadership decision-making and we see that the wisest decision-making you know, are those times when you, you know when it's appropriate to take courageous action when it's not appropriate because the, the gut, one of the gut's uh, prime functions is looking at boundaries and risk and self-preservation, etc. Yeah. Yourself and, and not just yourself, but your team, the people that you're leading. So from a, that, that heart connection space, the people that you're leading, you look at, shall I take this leadership action for me or my team? Is this going to be a true, truly exemplary and important aspect of, of how yeah. I care um, for yeah. me and my team and our outcomes? So, yes, I, I could see that you know it's not just about taking courage. Courage, in fact, we say that these three Cs, compassion, creativity and courage, are the highest expressions of the human spirit, you know, of, of the yeah. spirit of leadership. And they're integrated. Each requires the wisest forms of them. Each requires the other. So you wouldn't take courageous action if it would lead to non-compassionate actions that would hurt yourself or others. So if it was too risky in this instance, um, that wouldn't be wise. Courage it would be what you know, the Buddhists would call dumb courage and actually make things worse. You know, the, the courage is often associated, as I'm sure you know and have written about it extensively, it's often associated with acts of bravery and, you know, running into a burning building or, you know, running into a firefight uh, in order to save other people. But in fact, uh, that's not all the kinds of courage that there are. You know, it may be when we asked when we actually gathered stories and everyone had a story to tell about a courageous moment. We asked people, tell us about a time when you were courageous, a moment of courage in your life. And when people told us about a moment of courage in their lives, sometimes it was simply uh, the, the fear that they had of speaking in front of a large group of people because the person uh, had an affliction, which was that they stuttered uh, terribly and that it, it, they had this great fear of facing an audience. But it took them courage just to get up and deliver that speech. That's not the kind of courage we sometimes think about when we look go to a Mel Gibson movie, you know, but but rather the kind of courage that we think about when we're when we're personalizing it. And so there's you know adversity as as Randy uh, 
uh, Melville told us in one of his one of the interviews we had with him at the time, he was an executive with Pepsi Cola. Uh, he, he, he said to us, adversity reveals character. It doesn't build it. And I think that's an important a- aspect of this discussion and why it's Im- important for us to look at another C, character, you know, what it is that we value, value, what's important to us, what our beliefs are when we're talking about courage. Because when we face this adversity, this, this moral, that, that we, we need this moral strength to venture out and persevere, uh, that we are, are aware that underlying this is an important set of values and beliefs to us. Again, going back to what's not important to us, then we're unlikely to act on it. So courage involves, you know, that kind of taking initiative, which is then goes back to the gut part uh, of what you discuss in your work and a, and a moving through this kind of space that exists between not being courageous and being courageous. You know, one of the a colleague of mine in uh, Ohio who uh is specialized in creativity, interestingly enough, uh, had this sculpture in his office. And it was this bronze sculpture, life-size bronze sculpture of a person on one side of the wall, uh, one side of a bronze wall kind of leaning in, and then on the other side of the bronze wall coming through, reaching out. And the name of that uh, a sculpture was Courage. And I think that that to me spoke to me as a, as an image of what courage is. It's moving through this invisible space uh, where on the one side we're, we're just this normal human being and then on the other side we're a courageous human being. We're the same person, mm. but we move through this space uh, of something that creates this transformation in our own lives because it has meaning to us. We've had to sacrifice something in order to make this happen. and we are both fearful on the one hand because there is some fear whenever you're doing something that you're uncertain of the outcome and hope hope that things will work out for the better yes yeah that that's very 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 aligned with what we've seen because without fear without something that you need to push through that's not courage it's just confidence you know, if you know you can do it, there's no fear, there's no boundaries that you have to that, that invisible boundary, like you're saying, that you need to, to literally have the guts to push through. In fact, the modeling work we did with people who had done incredibly courageous stuff said they, they always felt fear, and fear was felt mm-hmm. in front of the gut, but they had to push through that fear and literally get this mm-hmm. feeling that was connected at the heart level. It had to be something in service of something so important, and for them to be them, they could not not act. They had to take action, even though in the front of their gut was this, this, you know, pit of fear, but they pushed through. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, um, very interesting that from that perspective, from an emotional intelligence, you know, utilizing your, your neurology and these, these yeah. neural intelligences in the body. Once you know how to take something from the heart, build that sense, you know, connecting your head and heart together to get that vision and purpose, which is, it comes back to what you were saying about leadership with creating the shared vision. Yes, I think to what courage courage is, is 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 part of other practices. It's it it by itself uh, it 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 has in sense no meaning, if you will, no significance. It only has significance if there's something important at stake. 
Yeah. Uh, and that means if you're going to have meaningful courage in your life, not the kind of bravado that yeah. you know we associate with certain certain kinds of courage, but something that's meaningful is that you have to be clear within yourself what's important to you, what what your values are, the principles that guide your decisions and actions. And then also what's important to you in the long term, what kind of future are you trying to create for yourself and others? And then to be able, if you're a leader, to inspire others to share that vision of the future, uh, to find the connection between what's important to them and the shared vision of the organization that you're leading so that they too can draw on courage when they need it uh, in times of difficulty and adversity. Because they too find meaning and significance in what they're doing. Yes, and as a leader, you know the people you're leading, your teams, they look to you either consciously or unconsciously for you know it's, it's a resonant entrainment. They literally you are modelling, as you said. You know one of your first core competencies you saw was that you need to model the behaviours mm-hmm. that you you want to lead in others. So this modelling the work, modelling the, the leadership, is is part of the challenge of being a true leader it's part of what you do and knowing that you've got to uh, connect with others in a way that allows you to understand their values and create use your creativity to create a shared vision has to be a shared vision that means it has to share and connect at the heart level would would you like to speak to to that aspect you know some more of what you've discovered in your work of this importance of this almost marrying of creativity with compassion of that connection at the heart level with creativity because Creativity by itself is a bit like the courage by itself. It's yeah. it's only meaningful and wise when it's integrated and in service of something that yes. that is wiser. Well, when when talking about leadership, as you know, it is a relationship. Uh, while you have a relationship with yourself, you are leading yourself. In a, in a leader of teams, leader of organizations, you have a relationship with others. And so we call the, the practices which are most associated with one of your C's, compassion, are enable others to act and encourage the heart. And, and they are the primary relationship building skills uh, and competencies that we talk about. And if, if you are going to successfully lead other people, you have to build relationships based upon trust and based upon your caring and compassion for other people. You know, I, I, I wanted to, to, um, just make a, a point too that I think about, we talked about the word courage and how it's often associated with things. Uh, passion is another word which is often associated, uh, and not well understood. When we think about passion, often people think about excitement and energy and enthusiasm. But in fact, passion literally, if you, people were to look it up in the, uh, Etymological dictionary, they would find that it meant suffering. Passion literally means suffering. And it's not only the first definition in a dictionary, it's the first and second and third definitions are all associated with suffering. And so when one feels passionately about something, one is in some ways suffering because you feel so strongly, you have to go through difficult times in order to achieve it. It is not, oh, it's all joy and goodness and it's great and exciting and enthusiastic, like going to a basketball or a game and watching your team win. 
or, 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 or a football game and watching your team win. It's not that kind of excitement. Passion is what comes from, from suffering through the difficulties to achieve something significant. So compassion means suffering with. If I'm suffering with other people, as they're going through their difficulties, that means I have to understand their hopes, dreams, and aspirations, their needs, not just what's important to me as a leader of other people. So the kind of relationship we have to build as leaders is one where we understand the suffering of others and are willing to suffer along with them. Some people refer to this as servant leadership, but it is the kind of leadership where uh, my what, what I am doing is in service of this greater good, uh, this vision that we all aspire to achieve. But it is one that uh, is built upon that relationship with other people, uh, that, that I understand other people's needs and hopes and dreams and aspirations, and that I am willing to suffer with them, that I have compassion uh, in order to achieve something greater than all of us. Yeah, so that co-creativity can emerge. So you allow people to have their part. As a leader, you're not just uh, delegating authority, but you're actually truly inspiring others to be their best. It's not just about your best moment, but you know, your best moment is, and you being your, your best as a leader is inspiring other people to be their best as leaders of their own lives in whatever it is that we're doing. Yeah, so well. So well and aptly put, Jim, and and so meaningful in terms of, you know, we spend so much of our time at work. You know, if you take out sleep time and, and preparing for work and getting to work and etc., work is the majority of what we spend most of our lives doing. And and so that's false dichotomy of the work life balance. I always thought it was a it was a strange concept because it seemed to me that we, we didn't have you couldn't separate work from life and say there's a work and life balance. Work is a core part of your life, so it's really a life-life balance and you need to uh, be turning up to work as a whole person, not just as a head on two legs and checking your heart at the door before you come in and, and being like a, a little work robot. You really were real humans turning up to inspire and work together with real humans to make a difference. If you're not doing that, then you're really counting down your days and numbers until you die. You know, you can make work a, an amazing difference in your life. And true leaders, the people that I've worked with you know, that have been inspiring leaders, always made me feel that way. They made me feel and gave me the opportunity to, to turn up and be the whole of me, you know, mm-hmm. completely human and all. Um, strengths and weaknesses and be able to push through the, those weaknesses, inspiring me. And I think that for, for me, it's uh, people will follow leaders who they truly feel care, care about the organization, care about the team, care about them. And that, that sense of caring means that they have to feel that compassion that they have to truly you know have that resonant connection and um, yes. and I noticed that non-verbally when you're expressing when you're talking to all of this um, like you, you were gesturing towards your heart whenever you you know and it's a natural expression when people talk about this sense of compassion yes. and connection of moving together you know to compassion to pass together to move together to alleviate that suffering together mm-hmm. they, they, they actually touch their hearts they, they gesture their hearts and um, there's interesting research on embodied cognition that says that it shows that when people touch, actually literally hold their hand on their heart, that it leads to much more honest and connected behavior. There's some fascinating research uh, in, mm. on, on this, that if they you know, um, get people to 
hold their hand on their shoulder, but people don't know that's what they're doing. They think they're holding a chest strap while they're doing cognitive problem solving. But if you hold your hand on your shoulder versus your hand on your heart, the, the hand on the heart leads to a huge decrease in cheating and, and um, stealing and you know antisocial behaviour in these these various mm. constructed exercises uh, in the lab. Yes. Uh, so it's it's quite fascinating that, that if you truly can connect at the heart level with yourself first, so as you said, leading yourself, and then with the people that you lead, then you know, what what unfolds is a flourishing of innovation and creativity in the team, of people coming alive, people starting to work at their best. And they do so because you've, you've inspired that shared vision of themselves yeah. working at their best through your number one competency, modeling the, these behaviors, actually doing them in your own life, right? Yeah, it's setting the example. You know, we like to say leaders go first. Yeah. Uh, you have to model the behavior you expect of others. And if you expect caring and compassion from others, then you have to demonstrate that yourself first. Now, I've had the opportunity recently to exchange, uh, have an email exchange with someone who wrote me just out of the blue and said, uh, and I was having this challenge, difficulty at work, and uh, he wasn't able to encourage the heart as well as he had hoped, and he had read our book uh, called Encouraging the Heart and was trying to put some of that in practice and asked me if I could give him one bit of advice around that. And so I said, the one bit of advice I would give you is that in every interaction that you have, before you have that interaction, whether it lasts a minute or an hour or it could last for days, reflect on the following. What can I, what can I do in this interaction, regardless of how long it is, so that by the time it's over, the other person feels more confident and capable and engaged than they felt before we started this interaction. And I think if every leader were to just pause for a second or two to ask themselves that question and then reflect on what they might do in that instance, we could better establish this kind of heart connection that you're talking about and more congruence between uh, our words and our deeds, more congruence between, you know, our compassion, creativity and courage. You know, and that that action that you take might simply be to nod your head and say, I hear you, I understand, or put a hand on a shoulder or or say, you know, if I could provide you with some advice, it would be this or uh, let me there's someone I think you need to talk to. I want to want to introduce you to somebody, whatever it can be, something that takes seconds, no costs, no money, but yet sending a signal to the other person that I care about you. I'm listening to you. I hear what you're having to say, I'm feeling that compassion and here's something that I can do to, to make you feel more em- engaged, more empowered, more e- uh, efficacious. Yes, beautiful. Uh, you're saying that brings to mind something that's been happening over the last year or so here in Australia, which is, uh, and, I, and you may not know this, but there's a, um, a really large infrastructure project that's been going for three years in Australia, um, it's the largest rail, fast rail infrastructure project in the Southern Hemisphere, and it's an $8 billion project, 10,000 workers over three years. And the leadership model for that is based on your work. So the people that brought in to do the, the, you know, the, the leadership model and to help the, the leaders of that, that project across the multiple organisations is all based on your and Barry's work. 
didn't know that. Yeah, so um, I was really delighted to, to see that they brought you know your model in for the leadership aspect. Uh, our model was brought in for the safety, so the workplace health and safety, and we called it authentic safety leadership. So it's it about safety leadership as compared to overall you know team and project leadership. And so the two models worked so beautifully together because all of the competencies you're talking about and therefore were being taught into the leadership team and encouraged in the leadership team. So beautifully aligned with what we're talking about, which is that for safety leadership, to be able to lead teams safely, that we need to be able to create a culture where people really feel that they've got trust and that the leaders care. They care enough that you can surface an, a safety issue that we could say check below the neck. And it turns out the research on safety is that the majority of people after the after unsafe incidents have occurred, they usually say that they, they knew in their gut, right, or their heart, they felt something wasn't right. It was an intuition that emerged up out of their body. And so they had this gut feeling something wasn't right. But there was no culture that allowed them to walk up to a leader and say, something's not right, but my head can't tell you what it is. We need to pull the team together and use the collective intelligence of the team to try and work out what it is that my gut's screaming at me, something's not right. But unless you've got a culture that supports that, you yeah. the little vignette that came to mind um, sharing about this is that when we, because our model is about based on these three competencies of the, you know, the heart, brain, the gut brain, and the head brain of compassion, creativity, and courage. And we, we did some action research with the, the guys all the way from, you know, the ones in on the tools in the day glow orange all the way up to the senior leaders to work out whether the nomenclature, the wording we would use, like compassion, would that fly with, you know, an Aussie workplace culture? And they, they, they really weren't happy with the word compassion, you know, that, that, that sort of word didn't fit in with their culture. We couldn't talk about asking the, the team leaders and the supervisors to start having more compassion. So what I came up with was, and it, it, I actually didn't try and consciously do this, but I, I just, you know, allowed my unconscious mind while I went for a run to come up with, uh, I got the feedback on a Friday afternoon and I went saying, compassion's not going to work, we need some other way to express this. And I went for a run just to allow my you know, unconscious mind to sort of mull over it and halfway through the run, I literally felt a bubble up out of my gut was this word, it's about care. And care is an acronym. And, and that acronym of if you really want to you know, have a behavioural competency, what would you say, what would you tell somebody to do in those moments, like you were just saying, those moments. So you'd leave the person feeling like there is, a, is true leadership caring. It was is connection, appreciation, respect, and empathy. So care as an acronym for connection, appreciation, respect, and empathy becomes a good behavioural operating strategy for how would I act in the moment? What would I do? As I'm sitting here talking with this person and they've come to me for leadership or safety leadership, uh, mm-hmm. how, how would I make sure that I'm enacting the encouraging the heart? Because, mm-hmm. you know, people will, will follow people that they feel have their best interests at heart, who truly care. And you know someone cares when they connect with you in some way, with, like you said, whether it's just nodding their head, eye-to-eye contact, you know, turning away from the computer screen to really look at the person engage with them, appreciate them, show some appreciation for who they are and what they're, they're going through or what they bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Respect them and provide some empathy for their situation, you know, so some, some deep feeling for what it is that person, because we turn up to work not just as little robots, but bringing a whole life to the table, right? So, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a really, uh, I thought it was a, an interesting um, experience that there's uh, both our models working hand in glove together, yeah. you know, uh, uh, making um, a, a major project in Australia where, where, you know, normally a lot of people on a project that size will get injured and a certain number will die. Yeah. That's the statistics, right? 
Um, so what what we can do in terms of leadership to bring that project to fruition in a way that you know less lives are damaged. Sure, there's greater productivity, etc. But you know people's lives get truly impacted by the sorts of things that happen in the workplace. But I, I, and I love that acronym. I, I, it's it's one that both the the word uh, is it's care uh, obviously evokes similar kinds of of, of re- a reaction as does compassion, and uh, also it has an acronym, so it's a nice model and a framework. Yeah. Those are always one. We need to come up with those. Wish you could do that often. <laughs> yeah, I've tried several times for certain, and they come up a, a little bit contrived. But this one just bubbled up out of my gut, fully blown into my conscious, you know, head brain. Um, uh, so I got back to my uh, office and con- you know, contacted the people who were actually up in Sydney at the time working. I said, "Check this. Check the team out with this. Check all the people out. Do, will they? Would they be happy if we said not compassion, but care? And care's an acronym, and this is what it is. And and everybody was like, yes." That works for us. We can accept that as a safety leadership, you know, um, competency that we're happy to care at the heart level where care stands for these behavioral aspects of connection, mm-hmm. appreciation, respect and empathy. And from that, of course, the true connection starts to flow. You, you get that sense okay. of caring and people then know how to act in the moment because it is, a, you know, like that guy was asking you, so what is it that I can do to encourage the heart? What, give me some advice. Well, you know, as you said, just feel those connections, appreciation, respect, and empathy. Mm-hmm. Leave the person in that space, and you'll be encouraging the heart. It'll entrain that into the team, and it truly makes a difference. Well, thank you for sharing that with me, Grant. I, you know, I know I've known of a few other organizations that have have used it, but I hadn't heard about this one. So, thank you for for sharing. And my co-author, Barry Posner, by the way, has spent uh, three sabbaticals. In uh, in Australia, at uh, Perth, in, in Perth, at the University of Western Australia, and I've been to Australia a few times myself. So I, I love love being there. I've just enjoyed every moment of my time there. Such a warm and inviting country, and people have been just so gracious. So it's wonderful to know that uh, we can be involved from a distance. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Thanks for those because By the way, um, there's a kangaroo right outside my window, even as we speak while while we're talking. He's lying down on the ground. I, can, I look out the window, and there's a bit of Australiana right right outside my window. Right outside your window. Kangaroos Wonderful. say hi to everyone. I, sometimes I'll see a deer out my window, but no kangaroos. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things, uh, speaking of care, that I, you know, we, we looking at the time we're coming on to probably the length of the interview that is probably optimal so we might finish shortly but one of the things talking about care that I wanted to ask you is I came across some you know given that that story of of the challenges of getting that word compassion into organizations you know there's certain sorts of organizational cultures don't like the word or they struggle with the word compassion and what does it mean you want us to be compassionate what does that mean Um, Mm -hmm. we're here to you know make a dollar and you know um, create whatever it is that we do as an organization right it's about the bottom line sometimes. One of the pieces of research I came across was uh, a lady, Christina Bodka, from the Australian School of Business, did a study of 5,600 leaders across 77 organisations. And uh, what she found was that the one factor that differentiated productivity across all sorts of measures, you know, pick any measure you wanted, productivity, and the one factor was compassion. The compassion of a leader is what differentiated um, the productivity of the team. Uh, more than any other 
measurable. So that was, it was really nice that there was some now hard data to say, you know, if you want to increase your bottom line as a leader, yes, some of these, what you might call, you know, people call soft skills, or I prefer to call human skills, are vitally important to, you know, productivity. People are more innovative, creative, productive. They work better. They, they produce more. And, yeah. you know, customers respond better, et cetera, et cetera, when there's compassion. Have you got any research, insights, or things to back up? And, and how do you approach getting people to, to accept, you know, that, that sense of coming from the heart is as important as, you know, the head-based creativity that is, is a normal factor? Yeah, well, we do not with the, not in the same way that um, at, at, that this uh, individual. What was her name again? Christina Bodka. Okay, sent sent me the link. I'd love to read the paper. Christina's paper. But so if you take a look at our data, for example, or in, in the area of encouraging the heart, uh, one of our questions, for example, is leaders uh, give members of the team lots of appreciation and support for their contributions which is one way of expressing uh, your the, the, the heart or the, the, the compassion component. We find that uh, when it comes to team spirit, feeling valued, feeling like your work is meaningful, uh, the sense of personal commitment to the organization, that the more a leader gives that kind of appreciation to others, shows that appreciation to others, the more the uh, people uh, find themselves engaged in work. So there's higher team spirit, there's more engagement, there's more feeling of being valued, there's higher levels of meaningfulness when the leader, when the leader expresses more of that behavior. And so just to give you an example, when it comes to feeling valued at work, when a leader almost never or rarely expresses appreciation, the level of engagement is only around 20 percent. Uh, but when the leader very frequently expresses appreciation to others for the work that they do, the level of, uh, of sense of, of feeling valued and that your work is meaningful is around 80 percent. And so there's a, that's a huge gap between it's you know, four times the level of engagement. So you can see from those measures that the more frequently you engage in behaviors which show that you care, that show that you uh, have compassion for the other person, the more that you feel like you appreciate the, what the other person does in their contributions to the organization, uh, evidence is very clear the, that there's more uh, higher levels of engagement when that occurs than when one does less of any of those behaviors. So if you took a look at, at any of the charts of our data, Grant, you would see that it's true not only for this practice, but all five practices, that the more frequently one does these kinds of behaviors, these exemplary leadership practices, the more engaged people are at work and the more productive the organization. Uh, when, whenever I present on this Data, we present this data in present, uh, in speeches that I give. I often tell people, I'm going to show you a, several charts, you know, a half a dozen, a dozen charts, depending on the length of the talk, just to demonstrate to you that there is evidence that all this works. But I really only need to show you one because all of them will look exactly alike. 
and it will show you that if you almost never do this stuff, you're going to get very low levels of engagement. But if you almost always do this stuff, you're going to get very high levels of engagement. But I'm going to show you all of them anyway, just so you can see that it's not just about one thing you do, but all of these things that you do. And, and so uh, that that's what I think is really powerful about gathering this kind of evidence about what you're describing, about what we're talking about, is that, you know, when, when direct reports are feeling like their leaders uh, almost never or rarely, or only once in a while, do these kinds of exemplary leadership behaviors, under 10% of people are engaged at work. On average, it's 4.2% of direct reports are highly engaged in their work. But when leaders almost always or very frequently engage in these behaviors, 95.8% of direct reports are highly engaged. And so this works. There's lots of evidence to demonstrate this. That, that what you're describing and what we what, what we write about and speak about works. And, you know, it doesn't just work from the perspective of it produces the results in other people. It also shifts how you feel about yourself at work. When you're doing these sorts of behaviors, the research shows when you have biological resonance, you know, connection, deep resonant connection with others, your autonomic nervous system shifts, which connects to your immune system. So you have more energy. You're, you as a leader have more energy. You feel better. You're able to fight off colds and flus better. You know, it, it produces a positive synergy in your own life as you yes. lead others into them to be more productive. So, yes. um, yeah. exactly, precisely correct. In fact, the, the, the same graphs that you might use for what direct reports say is if you just took the leader's self-assessment and their assessment of the extent to which they engage in these practices and look and then correlate that with their engagement at work, you find exactly the same thing. If I as a leader don't do these things very frequently, I say I'm not very engaged at work. If I do them very frequently, I'm much more engaged at work. So there is a positive correlation between my own sense of self and how frequently I do these things. Uh, not just uh, what other people say about their levels of engagement. So, so important and so valuable. So it's brilliant that you keep doing the research and doing the work and sharing. So I, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to ask, but do you have a new book coming out soon on, on some of your most latest work? Well, we had in 26, uh, 2017, we came out with the sixth edition of the Leadership Challenge. And then in February and March, we're coming out with two more books. The first of those is the third edition of the Student Leadership Challenge. So it is the same five practices, but the data we gathered is only from students in uh, late high school years and early and university. So, but primarily university uh, students, and then um, and and then only stories from the that audience. So it's all uh, data's and stories from from the your students who are in, in leadership roles. And again, what's important about that work is that students as leaders generally don't have some kind of formal position. They're often elected by their peers. They're often appointed. Sometimes they're self-selected because no one else wants to volunteer. Uh, and, and so, you know, and these are people who, uh, the people generally speaking, oh, 
probably 99% of the time aren't getting paid for anything. They're doing it only because they want to do it. So it becomes even more significant uh, and more important that when leaders do these things, people are more engaged because they're not getting paid to do them more. It's only because of the, the, that they're seeing the kinds of behaviors from leaders. And it's not only one leader often, it's often multiple leaders that they're working with, that they're more engaged. So that's the book in February. And then shortly after that, we're coming out with a book called Stop Selling and Start Leading. And that takes this framework and looks at it as a seller-buyer relationship. And again, going back to the notion of leadership as a relationship, uh, applying that to sales, selling is a relationship. It's a relationship between a seller and a buyer. And how do these practices manifest themselves in a selling situation? And does it, do these behaviors also work in that context? And wouldn't be, we probably wouldn't have written the book had we not found that it did. Yeah. Uh, but what we find is that buyers prefer these behaviors to the more traditional stereotypical selling behaviors. Uh, that buyers prefer that they be used there, but they say they would be more likely to buy from uh, sellers. And when sellers engage in these behaviors, in fact, they do find that they're more successful in making sales when they lead the buyer than when they try to sell to the buyer in the stereotypical sense. Oh, that's, that's so that's great. Next, the next book that comes out. And we're very, this is the first movement away from applying the framework just to a leadership situation, because this is not sales leaders working with sales teams. It's sellers working directly with buyers. Yeah. Uh, but still that relationship, that piece that's consistent. Yes. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I'm pretty sure from our experience that your model, which is so you know, beautifully, just a different expression, really, of, of our, our model. There are different ways of expressing or looking at the same excellence in human behavior, of which one aspect of human behavior is how we lead ourselves, lead our lives and lead others. It's going to apply to any aspect or context of domain of human endeavor. Yeah. And that the work on sales fits so beautifully with our own work on sales on what we call neuro-integrative selling, you know, the alignment of the three brains that we talk about in a similar manner. It's really, uh, as a salesperson, about coaching the buyer into the wisest buying decision. When you build that relationship about not trying to sell, but helping the person to to align around their own wisdom, so that you know their head, heart, gut uh, is all aligned on making a wise buying decision. You build mm-hmm. a relationship, you become more successful. You take the pressure off the traditional sales model. Our um, research totally backs up what you're saying. That if you took those competencies, which are just another way of expressing what our we're trying to express with our model, like a lens on the same human behaviours, yeah. it absolutely works. It shifts the the, the buyer selling relationship. And buyers prefer to buy from people they feel they can trust. You know, they I have agree. their best interests at heart, shall we say. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Rather we, than you know, to get a sale and bottom line. So um, It's good to know you're finding similar kinds of things in the work that you do with sales. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So uh, I'll be looking forward to getting a copy of that book. And uh, well, I hope all the listeners are, are going to be uh, getting ready to say a oh, new book coming out by Jim and Barry together. Uh, so the student leadership challenge is uh, the two of us. The yeah. uh, stop selling and start leading is with a third author because Barry and I were not subject matter experts in sales. Uh, so we partnered with uh, a colleague, Deb Calvert, who is. 
Uh, Deb uh, is also one of our certified masters in delivering the leadership challenge work, but she has a professional sales background and a sales training background. And so she brought to us a nice combination of the uh, knowledge of our work on leadership and the and her expertise in selling. And so it was a wonderful, wonderful collaboration with her in bringing this together. And and she she just added such important value to this and and uh, will be the missionary for for this particular book. Yes. The evangelist. She's going to be the evangelist. Awesome. Well, if people would like to know more about your work, um, you know, upcoming books, etc., what's the best website? What's the best way for them to find out? Our, uh, the best website is the le- is leadershipchallenge.com, and it's managed by our publisher, John Wiley and & Sons, and it has uh, descriptions of current things we're doing. You can sign up for a free newsletter if you want to if you're even more interested in, in hearing from us on a monthly basis, it's completely free and no obligation. And it has the other thing that for those who are interested in research on leadership, there is a section, uh, a tab on research that's both researched by the authors and researched by others. And you can find abstracts of over 700 other academic papers written using this framework so if you're interested in schools or police or if you're interested in in government agencies or healthcare or uh, corporations you can find some data about how uh, this the model the five practices is is used and how valid it is in particular in those particular situations well thank you very much for your time today. I really deeply appreciate it, and thank you for the work that you do. It's so vitally important, and it really does you know, make a difference. So thank you so thank much. Thank you, Grant, for sending me the book. I appreciate it. I have it right here, and I've been reading reading it. Uh, I'm not all the way through, but uh, I do ha- have re- and enjoyed it. And I have to tell you, as I told you in my email back, you know, I definitely not an expert in the three brains. So this has been very educational to me in learning, uh, learning about this, this framework and the work that you do. And so thank you for this opportunity to speak with you more and learn more about it. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jim. Thank you. Thank you so much for connecting. I really, as I said, it, it meant quite a lot to me, especially uh, when, when I'd been following your work for a number of years and then I knew that our work together was synergistically making a difference to 10,000 workers on a project. So uh, the fact that you agreed to get, accept a copy of the book and to do this interview meant quite a lot to me. So thank you. Thanks, Grant. Appreciate it.